Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. I'm joined this week by Cole Morton, the award-winning author, journalist and broadcaster and a former reporter and news editor of the Church Times. In the course of Cole's career, he has encountered an incredible range of people, some famous, some infamous, and others less well-known, but with extraordinary stories to tell. This experience has led him to reflect on the remarkable lives we live as human beings and the lessons we can learn from connecting with each other. In a forthcoming new podcast called Can We Talk, Cole reflects in each episode on a single encounter. In the first series, the subjects range from Tiger Woods to Nelson Mandela, from Scarlett Johansson to The Queen. And in this week's Church Times, he reflects on a memorable encounter with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Can We Talk launches on the 8th of February and will be available on the usual podcast platforms. It's produced by Hodder Faith. Cole, welcome back to the Church Times podcast. Thank you. It's fabulous to be here. You're already an established writer and radio broadcaster. I wonder what made you decide to start this podcast. Well, I love podcasts. I love the intimacy of it. What I really love about radio is that it's talking in your ear, you know, whispering to you, really telling you a story. That's the kind of stuff I make for Radio 4. And um, podcasts just give you an opportunity to do that uh, on an even more intimate level, really. And and I should, I want to say up front too that the new podcast is, okay, so this is a podcast and we're having a chat. It's a different format to that in that what you're going to get is a half an hour story. You know, it's produced so that it just sounds like me and you in a room and I will be just telling you a story about somebody that I've met and what I've learned from them. And there'll be little flashes of music and stuff, but it's essentially like um, they, the people who commissioned it wanted to say, want me to say that it's like David Sedaris. Well, I wish it was. <laughs> but that's, that's the aspiration. You know, somebody sits down and tells you the story. And the podcast is going to be about your encounters with some very famous and infamous people, but also with lesser known people who have really interesting and remarkable stories to tell. I mean, do you think that was important to have? Because you've you've met a lot of very well-known people through interviewing for the Mail on Sunday, the Independent, other national publications. But we're also keen to Mm. tell the stories of people who weren't in the public eye or or got got into the public eye for certain, certain events. So, I mean, there's, the, the interviews go back over 20 years, probably. Um, I was at The Independent for a, 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 most of the first half of that. And The Guardian and The Telegraph and The Sunday Times and now The Mail on Sunday. So during that time, there's been the opportunity to be in a room with some, you know, famous people and some infamous people, some really infamous people and I I wanted initially to to sort of you know I mean nobody wants to read a book of interviews that have just been lifted from the papers and recycled that I mean I wouldn't want to but what what I did begin to think was what have I learned from all of these people that I've encountered over this time what kind of wisdom can I bring forward that would be useful to people and how can I reflect on what it was like then to do what I did and what it's meant since? I mean, for example, one of them is uh, Tiger Woods in the first series. And I did the first interview after the scandal. Uh, and 
at the time, you know, that was a very sort of tight, controlled, difficult thing to do. And now um, maybe, I don't know what, what it is, six, seven, eight years on, things have happened to him and me that make me reflect on what it was that experience was like and what it meant. So, so it's not just rehashed interviews, but then also one of the things that I've really understood so clearly over the years is you just don't have to be famous to have an extraordinary story um, that we, we each of us have these stories inside us if they can just be encouraged to come out and that there are some people who, for whatever reason, find themselves caught up in extraordinary moments who really are just like you and me, but, you know, who can bring an insight into that. So, so in series one, which is kind of loosely themed around icons, the idea of an icon. We've got Scarlett Johansson, Tiger Woods, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, and the Queen. But then number six, I haven't interviewed the Queen, by the way. This is the reason why some of them say encounters with rather than interviews with. Uh, but number six is somebody called Zara, who came across the channel on uh, a, an overloaded rubber dinghy on Christmas Day two years ago. Uh, and who is trying to make her life in this country. And her story is, has resonances with ancient folk stories, with legends and epics and great quests, a 7,000 mile journey to try and find some place where you can be safe and secure. So um, I really wanted to make the point right in the first series, and hopefully there'll be many series, but I, I want to make the point straight away that in the same way as the Queen is just, you know, a woman who wants to put her feet up and have a cup of tea at the end of the day, um, Zara is somebody whose story is as worthy of respect, if you see what I mean, as worthy mm. of being told. But how did you go about researching? Did you, did you read back over interviews, notes you had? Did you have to, in particular for the ones that were some years ago, did you have to really think quite hard about remembering the encounters and what they were like? Yeah, I mean... Um, I think the oldest is Tiger, so 10 years ago. So that's the yeah. oldest. Uh, the proper answer to your question is that I, I keep meticulous notes. Um, so for every interview that I've done, I've got the transcript. Obviously, I've got the recording. I've got the transcript. I've got the quotes that I organised from the transcript. And then I've got a file of notes about what the experience was like. So I've been laying down that for every single interview for, well, certainly for the last 10 years. So in a way, there's something to go to straight away. And then obviously they, they open up memories of what it was like. And there are, you know, you can ask people as well who were around. It's not like there's nothing to go to. There's quite a detailed bank of stuff to go to. I mean, it's quite a basic question. How do you go about securing interviews? Obviously, you often come with a, with a national publication who you're writing for, but often there might be. PR people. I remember Boris Johnson interview. I think when he's mayoral candidate in two thousand and eight, they they tried to prevent you interviewing, so you chased the room around London. I think to yeah, speak to I you. chased him I mean, all over London. Yeah, yeah, you have to be quite persistent <laughs> to secure. And the extraordinary thing was, that I discovered that Boris Johnson will say anything to anybody who's in front of him, and it may not even be true. It's extraordinary <laughs> that we should we should find that out, isn't it? Twelve years ago, um, yeah. So uh, how do I go about securing them? I, Mate, honestly, I have the easy life right now in that my day job for you magazine for Mail on Sunday 
it involves them telling me who I'm who I'm interviewing. So right. that really is like the luxury end of interviewing, and I'm, I'm basking in it like I'm on a, a you know Barbados uh, beach resort. Um, so that's now. Um, in the past, um, you know, there was hours and hours and hours of looking at forward planning diaries and begging begging PRs and sometimes uh, it's you know approaching people direct and trying to be creative about the reasons for doing it I remember doing Nick Cave the fabulous musician because I'd spotted I'd always wanted to do him his work is so resonant with the kind of issues and ideas that Church Times readers might be familiar with and I wanted to do him and um I just couldn't find a way through the record company or whatever. And then I noticed about three or four months out that he was due to present the Turner Prize, right? Which for him was just a kind of little paid gig to, to go on telly for 30 seconds and present it on Channel 4. But it just meant that if you spot something like that, you can just, just go to the Turner people and say, you're not going to get that publicity and and you know of that of that kind can i just interview him and so it, it's and that was for the independent um whether you're doing it for the independent or the or the church times or whoever you're doing it for it's a question of understanding that the machine wants to keep you out and finding a creative way to get around it really i mean you you were you were talking earlier about um when we when we first met each other uh, one of the things that, that I did was spend some time with Justin Welby as Archbishop of Canterbury. And the way that that interview, I mean, I, I, I won't go into the details of it, but the way that that interview evolved, why it happened and how it happened, was to do with unexpected stuff involving personal connection. You know, and so you just have to take advantage of, you know, find a way around the system wherever you can. Yeah, and if there's sort of existing relationship or trust there already, the, the, the person thinks they'll get a, a fair hearing and um, precisely that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th I, yeah, I think that's absolutely key. I mean, I mean, what I can say about that publicly is that I interviewed, obviously, I interviewed Catherine Welby about her um, uh, mental health concerns. You know, the things that she was writing about, about what she'd been through, and the public thing I can say about that is that that established a degree of, oh, well, this is probably someone we can trust that, you know? Yeah. So, and, 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 and the reason that I did Catherine, who, who was wonderful, um, is because a, a mutual friend of ours said to her, look, I think this might be the guy who could, could do an interview for you. So, so there's a, there's a lot, a lot of building up trust. You have to be lucky. You have to be, think outside the box. And you have to be somebody that people feel won't stitch you up. And that's quite key, really, because interviewing traditionally has been seen as combative and it's been seen as, um, you know, oh, they're coming here to trip me up. But actually, it works best when you don't think that you, you know, I know that you're not here today to trip me up. So I'm much more likely to give you stuff that is more personal, and more interesting, I hope, you know, as opposed to just sitting here being guarded. And it, I think quite a lot of interviewers and newspaper editors don't understand that. I mean, is there ever pressure to get a scoop, particularly for a national publication? And does every that, time, every single time. But does that come about by being a more trust, trust, you know, a figure who who elicits trust rather than trying to trip them up or catch them out? Yeah. So 
every time I go to interview, so for you magazine, I inter- basically fundamentally interview interesting women uh, um, who are who are doing uh, you know interesting projects. So for example, one of my favourites recently was Susan Sarandon, the Hollywood actor who was fabulous, really. Um, and there there are two things going on. One one by the time you get into the room or on the Zoom with that person, if their PR and your editor have done their jobs, they both understand that this is a place of relative safety, you know, um, that it's going to be okay. But then what I also understand is that from that chat, I can't just have an anemic chat with her about her latest movie. I need to find something that she says that is going to uh, generate a, a news line, generate a news story. And, and they know that, right? Um, so it, it, I, I guess in some ways they're they're preparing. What are we prepared to say, <laughs> right? And I'm and I'm preparing. What am I after? But then when you actually get into the room, it doesn't really work like that. When you just get into the room, it becomes a conversation between two people, which goes in unexpected directions. And for that example, Susan Sarandon, that's not in the podcast, but it, it might be in series two. I was talking to her about the fact that I went to see her film, The Hunger, when I was 16, three times, because I was in love with her and David Bowie simultaneously. Out of that, for whatever reason on that day, she began to tell me about her relationship with Bowie, how they'd been serious lovers, and how they had been reconciled just before he died, and how he called her. And she told me this extraordinary story about how they they'd spoken together just before he died and then she had a dream while she was doing refugee work in Lesbos that he had called her in the middle of the night when and she woke up having taken a sleeping pill the previous night she woke up and found that he had called her and she can't remember any of that last conversation an extraordinary um story which came out of even within the great mechanism of editors and PRs and everybody knowing what it is that their parameters are, you've still got two people in a room who make a connection and one of them tells a story about something that they haven't told before because that's what they really want to say. Yeah, so you, so that's what you're looking for. You're looking for something that is beyond the ordinary, really. Talk about being in a room with someone. I mean, obviously with, with the pandemic, has that changed how you conduct the interviews? Have you, has it had to move on to Zoom and things? And has that affected the encounter, really? Yeah, Susan was on Zoom. And it's difficult, Ed, isn't it? I mean, you and I would rather be in a room, wouldn't yeah. we? <laughs> right? It is difficult, but, you know, it just has to be done. Uh, there is a tangible difference between doing it on Zoom and doing it in a room. And uh, the reason why, for example, Susan Sarandon wasn't in Series 1 is because it was on Zoom. I think, I mean, if I... Like if you'd, if you'd said to me this, this morning, shall we get together in a room to do an interview? Um, because it's you, because it's church times, because that's the thing that's close to my heart, I would have said yes. But for other publications, you know, if you're busy, why not just do it on Zoom? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I can see how it, it kind of shifts the balance of power towards the interviewee, really, in a way. But, you know, in a, what I'm saying is that in a room is better. Yeah. Did you, um, do, do you get nervous when you're interviewing? Every time I get really nervous. Yeah. All the time. I mean, I think, I think because there's so much riding on it, you know, 
I don't get more than an hour with people these days. And in that time, I've got to establish some kind of connection. And I, I am under some pressure now from the, my main employer to, as I say, to get a news line in every interview. So I've got to be completely switched on as to uh, what they're saying, what it means, what the resonances are, what I could possibly follow up. I've got, I've got to really have everything about them held in my head because I don't use notes, for example, because um, I want it to be a conversation, yeah. not an interview. So, um, yeah, I, every time I think this is the one where the wheels fall off and I lose my job every single time. Really? Wow. Yeah. And, and do you get feedback from interviewees, uh, positive or negative? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, best, the best ones lately, because of that thing I'm talking about where we're operating within a kind of system, the best ones are where, when people say, do you know what, actually, that was a, a lovely conversation. Or, you know, I felt like we, you know, it didn't feel, if they say it didn't feel like an interview, and I also know in the back of my mind that I've got an amazing newsline out of them, then everybody's won, haven't they? You know? And, and again, I repeat, that newsline wouldn't involve me tripping them up. It would involve them saying what it is that they want to say, that they kind of, see, I've got this theory. I think I talk about it in the Tiger Woods episode in the, in the podcast, that we all have things that are just kind of sitting on our chest that we want to say, that we kind of feel like we need to say, but our PR or our manager or our dad or our partner or whoever it is is saying no you mustn't or our, ourselves are saying no we mustn't but actually it's sitting there like a kind of like it like a kind of burp really and it's kind of like you're you're in a way it's my job to kind of like put my arms around them and burp and sort of like burping a baby just rub their back until it comes popping up you know are, are other um, aides or prs in the room usually or do you ask for it to be one-on-one -on -one and does that affect how much they're going to open up if somebody sat there raising their eyebrows or shaking their head to say don't go there as you indicate of course it does i mean i mean i had i've had one relatively recently it would it would not be very tactical of me to say who it was but it was involving a uh, major entertainment series uh, where there were there was me and the person i was interviewing and there were four other publicists in the room uh, I'm, actually, I can talk again. I can talk about the Tiger Woods one, which is in the in the podcast, um, because in in that situation, this is absolutely the extreme end of it. Right? We had I had 15 minutes, and in that 15 minutes, I had to ask 10 questions, which were preset. Uh, they were already uh, defined. It was for uh, a computer company who had a computer game with Tiger Woods on the front. So most of the questions had to relate to the computer game. And when I was in the room, sitting with Tiger, almost kind of knee to knee, really, uh, as I described in the podcast, there were four or five people with their hands over us like a forest, kind of pointing their own recorders down at us, right? And, and in that situation, you know, very short amount of time, preordained questions surrounded by people knowing that if I depart from the question they're going to jump on me what do you do so I did a couple of things one is that when I sat down I looked him in the eye and said it's just me and you then to try and establish that 
then I did depart from the set questions about halfway through and got jumped on and they threatened to shut me down. They said, look, if you, if you, if you carry on with that, uh, we'll shut the thing down. But then one of the questions and the way that I asked it, which was slightly off piece, unlocked something in him about his dad and about his life. And so with 13 minutes and 26 seconds gone out of a 15 minute interview, and I can remember this because I looked, he said, um, I, anyway, I don't think I can carry on like this. I don't think I'll carry on playing at the same level. You know, maybe I'll play with my friends and my family, but I don't think I can go on in this way. Which for, which for you know, somebody who at the time was, you know, trying to get back to being the world's number one sportsman was an astonishing thing to say. Um, and of course the PRs couldn't interrupt that because it was Tiger speaking, right? And, and that's an example of what I was talking about before where the thing that he really felt, it just popped up, you know? The, 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 uh, the sort of subtitle for that story in the podcast is The Truth Will Out because I, I do just think there's this thing that's sitting there that, you know, I mean, there's something I can see from your face that there's something that you really want to tell me. And if, and if the roles were reversed here, I would do my best to get it out of you. I'm sure you would. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anyone either from series one or other people who've interviewed who surprised you most when you've met them? Who's, who didn't fit the preconceptions you had of them going in? One of the biggest surprises is right there in, Episode one, Scarlett Johansson, where the idea is that you get 15 minutes. That's what you get with a Hollywood superstar. And you've usually got a couple of publicists in the room. And that, so I went all the way to Manhattan expecting that to happen in the same way as I had with Tiger. And, and in the Tiger episode, you see what happens at the opposite end of the scale. But with this one, I get a call to say, actually, Scarlett will meet you in a bar. And I go there and there are no publicists and we start to talk and we talk and talk and talk and it goes on for a couple of hours. And, you know, in that time with Scarlett Johansson, right? I mean, my inner chimp is going, hey, you know, she must really like me, <laughs> right? And, and, and episode one is all about that. It's all that mad male delusional thing does when you get kind of like a, a taste of intimacy with somebody that you didn't expect. It's like, oh, it must be because she really fancies me. This is Scarlett Johansson, you know, I, I simultaneously having this like, half of my brain is going, this is a date. And half of my brain is going, you are a deluded idiot. You know, but but both, all, both sides of my brain going, I don't understand why, why it's turned out like this. Why? Are we just chatting about life? Why has it gone on for two hours? Why are we just two people in a bar, you know, um, chatting for a long time? And the reason, I think, was to do with what was going on in her life, right? So I asked her questions about her, you know, her partner at that time and her, her family life and everything, and she answered them. And she gave me no indication that anything was wrong, but then she is a famously brilliant actress. And then... The next day, I woke up and I had an email from my boss saying, what did you do? And it, it was all over the papers that her wedding, her, her, her marriage had broken up. 
right? And she'd been seen without her wedding ring. And so everyone was saying her marriage is over. And so my editor, you know, in a joking way was saying, you know, did she see you and just decide that she found a real man at last? And I was like, really not, really not. So what was going on? I think that she had found a space where she could have a chat with somebody about life in relatively convivial circumstances. She's a good enough actor to keep her, her real issues out of it, but she could find a little bit of kind of, uh, you know, human company for an hour or two away from everything else that was happening. And she was just hiding away a bit, really. And that, you know, and so that's episode one. And, the, and what I'm saying out of that is the reflection that, you know, sometimes if you feel like you're putting on a show or it's all too much, sometimes you just, for your own sake, have to hide away for a bit to recharge. Um, and you, you mentioned interviewing Justin Welby. You've interviewed um, other leading religious figures, Rowan Williams, Cardinal Vincent Nichols, etc. We also mm-hmm. wrote an extract, um, an edited transcript from your podcast this week in the Church Times of your encounter with um, Desmond Tutu. Um, I mean, could you tell us a bit about that? I was interested the way it starts, where you you talk, you reveal in the podcast where where you were at at the time as well, going through a, a kind of faith crisis or loss of faith. Mm. Um, I mean, could you talk a bit about what that experience was like with with that iconic figure? Sure. So yeah, I mean, the, I have interviewed a number of leading religious and spiritual figures, um, and the thing about Tutu. Uh, so Desmond Tutu appears in episode three. Obviously, this is a guy who is, you know, hugely impressive. I mean, one of the one of the serious figures of our times. And I met, I first met him in Jerusalem or in Nablus, actually, uh, in 1999, when I'd gone to do a piece for the Independent with a bunch of people from the church in Wales, Barry Morgan and a bunch of people there who were lovely. I loved them to bits. They they were great company. Um, And they were doing a Living Stones pilgrimage where you go to the West Bank and Gaza as well as seeing the traditional kind of Holy Land sites. And it was that mad period in 1999 where everybody thought the end of the world was coming just because of a flip of the calendar. And there were people popping up on the streets of Jerusalem who thought they were the Messiah every five minutes, you know, most of whom were very naughty boys. And, um, you know, uh, in case any church time readers don't know, that was a Monty Python joke. Um, (laughs) I'm sure they do. So that's when I came across Tutu. And at that point, I had been through IVF that had been quite damaging, trying to have a baby. And I'd had an anti-conversion experience. My heart was strangely chilled you know, to paraphrase, uh, and everything had fallen apart as opposed to falling into place. And so for a while there, I was completely lost and didn't really know where I was going. And Jerusalem and Nablus helped me to get back on track, really, Um, partly through a recognition that I was in a place where, uh, for whatever you make of it, you know, the stories of three major religions had all happened within a hundred yards of where I was standing at a certain point, you know, where the temple curtain had torn in two, where Abraham had bought Isaac, where Muhammad had ascended into heaven. All of those uh, fundamental stories had, to those religions had 
taken place within the landscape of the Dome of the Rock and the Western Wall. And I was standing there thinking there is some mad fractured conversation going on between the divine and the human. And even if I feel like I've lost my faith at this point, I, I can't not acknowledge that it, it that this is happening. So that was a kind of gateway into a different kind of faith. So that was the context in which I met him. And then I went off to this village with Bishop Rhea, the Bishop of Jerusalem at the time, and these people from the church in Wales. And uh, from memory, there were about 30 of us. And we were going to go to uh, communion in a little chapel, and then we were going to go to a, a big sort of lunch for the local community. And when we went into the communion, Bishop Rhea said, oh, a friend has come to talk to us this morning, and, and in walks Tutu. And this is 1999, so, you know, truth and reconciliation has happened, South Africa's being rebuilt. Here's a man right at the centre of a global drama, uh, you know, and uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, what an extraordinary thing. And he turned out to be there because he was working with Yasser Arafat and the Israeli government on peace talks. So he he got up and he said, uh, he, you know, first of all, he, I mean, he gave us communion, which which was I get goosebumps still thinking about what that was that was like to to, you know, to celebrate communion in in that community of people who I really liked. Uh, who were looking after me actually at that time and for and for Desmond Tutu to be the man who brought the, the bread and wine that was extraordinary what a privilege um and then he, he talked about how change could come to the Middle East just as it had come to South Africa and you know and when somebody with that level of experience of extraordinary change talks you go okay I, I can believe you you know for that for those few minutes when you're in a room with them you think I can oh, I can believe in that so feeling all buoyed up by that, I approached his people and said, would you mind if I interviewed him? And they went, yeah, sure. You know, we're driving back to Jerusalem later, two hours in the car. You can sit in the back of the car with him, just the two of you, and ask him whatever you like, right? What? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Brilliant. I'm going to do that. So there was, a, there was one of these lunches that just went on forever. Uh, the speeches and songs and everything and the whole time I'm thinking because this is pre-internet you know or, or pre certainly there was no access to the internet then in that part of the world at, at that moment and I'm thinking what do I know about Desmond Tutu what can I ask him what what can I sensibly ask him so the whole time I was like scrabbling down bits of notes trying to talk to people what, what can I say what can I say M more nervous than I've ever been you know because for me to be able to ask him about what he was doing there, that was going to be a big story. And also just the privilege of being with that person. So he comes towards the end of the lunch and he, he had these massive bodyguards with him. He was in this kind of sort of what looked like a bulletproof car. And the lunch finished and the bodyguards and the minders and the companions and all of that, they all knew what was going on. They were all happy about it. It had all been worked out. So we go to the cars, he gets in one side, I get in the other, close the door, and he absolutely screams at me. Get out of my car, get out of my, get out of my car, get out of my car. Because nobody told him. <laughs> he thought you could be a, an assassin or something or. Yeah, he thought I was trying to kill him. He did. 
Um, you know, he'd just been he'd just been doing peace talks between the Israeli government and Yasser Arafat. And then he gets to this place and this enormous then blonde bloke gets in the car and he doesn't know who I am. And I block out the sunlight. Of course, he's going to scream. You know, of course, he's going to scream. And so I, I you know, I got out of the car because I because, you know, let me tell you, when Desmond Tutu screams at you, he really screams at you. I got out of the car and the bodyguards just kind of laughed and shrugged and the car just went off in a, in a kind of haze of dust. Right. I'm just and I'm just standing there by the roadside thinking, you know, you but but you're my hero. <laughs> this, this can't have happened. You're my hero. This was gonna be the big moment. This was gonna we were gonna have a massive moment of connection. And so yeah. I mean, episode three is about Tutu. It tells that story, and it also tells how after Mandela died. I was reporting on that and I found myself in Johannesburg at a gathering of friends and family for Mandela after his death. And Tutu gave us gave an extraordinary speech in that room that connected everybody in the room. Uh, and so he was at that moment, the embodiment of this idea of Ubuntu that he has, I am because you are, that we function together as human beings. And so, in the end, I did really feel that strong sense of connection with him, uh, but certainly not when I was standing uh, watching his car drive off, feeling kind of humiliated and stupid. Now, I, I should tell you that my son, Josh, whenever I talk about this one, he goes, oh uh, yeah, episode three, that's the one where you fail to inter some, interview somebody twice, isn't it? <laughs> so there you go. Don't have kids. Well, it doesn't sound like it was your fault. They should have told him what was going on. Yeah, they should have. Yeah. Perhaps the final question. What? It's a big question, really. But what? I mean, one of the you talking about in the podcast about um, what it teaches you about living well. These encounters. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what have they taught you about about that? That's changed you, perhaps, or your perspective. I think the reason why I wanted to do Mandela and Tutu in series one was because for me at the heart of all this is the thing that Desmond Tutu talks about, um, the concept of, of Ubuntu, this, I, these, this set of ideas that he grew up with in uh, tribal community in South Africa, which he saw echoed and amplified in Christianity, which he summed up as I am because we are uh, and he says, you know, I can't be a human being on my own. I wouldn't know how to walk. I wouldn't know how to talk. I wouldn't know how to act unless uh, I learned that from people around me. And we're all connected. And uh, actually, when you follow that through, you, you learn a number of things. You, you, you see that, you know, I need you and you need me and that you will learn from me and I will learn from you, which is a profound thing to experience. If, if, you, if you're in the company of somebody famous or infamous and you manage to uh, connect with them on a level that is personal and is about you two as two human beings on the basis of Ubuntu, you know, what can we learn from each other? First of all, it takes your interview to another different place entirely. But also, you know, it, what does the interview matter? What does the work matter? What matters is two people connecting in a room. So I learned that. I learned that 
because we are connected, because we are equally worthy of respect, because we each have stories that deserve telling and because we each deserve to be listened to. Therefore, you know, all of that stuff resonates with my understanding of what Jesus said and uh, where Jesus is coming from. Uh, and it relates to each of us being equal before God. And therefore, if we are e each of us connected and equal before God and worthy of respect, then it becomes easier to talk about forgiving people and asking to be forgiven. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's an awful paraphrase, really. And there's a problem was saying it but you know I remember George Osborne when he was one of the 14 millionaires in the in the conservative government saying we're all in this together right I mean it was painting nonsense when he said it but it's actually true on a human level we are all in this together and so what I've learned from interviewing the famous and the infamous and the extraordinary and just people who had stuff happen is that we're all the same we're all worthy of being listened to and we're all in this together Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.